great. I owe to be a fly on the wall when the church was organized. I'm really excited to talk about this today. Yeah, I'm interested in getting in this idea of what it means to be created in the image and likeness of God. This is something that Christian theologians have thought about for centuries. So welcome. Before we get into our discussion, maybe we can follow up on what we read. Yeah, let's do it. All right, so today we are in Doctrine and Covenants 20 through 22. In these sections, Joseph Smith receives a revelation on the organization of the church. Doctrines, laws, and duties are outlined. The church is also going to be organized on April 6th, 1830. It's an exciting time for the church, and the first sacrament since the church has been organized is going to take place. Joseph Smith also receives a revelation about baptism. He's taught that baptism is a covenant that must be performed by the proper authority. Today we're going to focus specifically on three things. The first thing is essentially how the Lord organizes his church, what that looks like. And we're going to talk a little bit about the image of God, what that means for us to possess it, and also about the difference and, uh, of justification and sanctification and the role of grace in achieving those two states. So in order to do this, we have a wonderful guest today, Brad Wilcox. Hi. Thank you for being here with us. Welcome, Brad. Good to be here, Barbara you and Daniel. So. It's good to see you too. <laughs> yeah, Thank you. Too. Brad is the second counselor in the Young Men General Presidency. He's a professor of religion at Brigham Young University in Ancient Scripture, and he's also a public speaker and a wonderful writer. Thank you. It's great to be able to be here. Thank you, Brad. Thanks so much. So, Brad, before we get into our discussion about uh, the Lord's uh, organization of his church, I'm wondering if you could just tell us uh, what kind of things stood out to you in these sections. Well, I think one thing that always stands out to me when I look at Doctrine and Covenants 20 is that this may be the very first reference we have to the first vision, at least the published, first published yeah. reference. Yeah. Yep. If you look at verse 5 in section 20, it says, After it was truly manifested unto this first elder, Joseph Smith, that he had received a remission of his sins. This is referring back to the first vision because then the very next part is talking about Moroni and the coming of Moroni and then the Book of Mormon and the three witnesses. So when you put this in a timeline, I don't think many members of the church realize that we have a reference right here to the first vision in the very first published revelation of this dispensation. And I love that. Yeah, it's great that it's the first published revelation as well. I mean, it's kind of fun to think, you think about all these revelations that the Lord has given them, but right now, the Lord is going to establish his church. I just think for Joseph and for his whole family, you think about his mom and his dad and his siblings that were confused and all these people, no more confusion. This is a church. It's going to be established April 6, 1830. It's pretty exciting. Yeah, and this is what Bruce R. McConkie actually says about the Section 20, which, as you know, which, as you mentioned, focuses on the administrative functions of the church. We call Section 20 in the Doctrine and Covenants the Constitution of the Church, meaning it is the document that sets forth what the basic doctrines, organizational structure, and procedures of the church are. There's obviously a lot of historical context here. Joseph Smith is, I would imagine, very giddy about this experience. He's been praying for the Lord. He's been trying to figure out what he's supposed to do with the saints. He has this small group of people, and he knows that the laws of the land are requiring a certain number of people to be there. And so now the Lord is going to fulfill this whole question and teach the doctrines as well. Yeah. And it's interesting, Barbara, because not only does the law require that there be six people there, yeah. but it also requires that they have a written statement. And that's part of this section as well, is that this becomes the written statement that's required by the law. 
So in addition to uh, revealing something about the organizational structure of the church and the responsibilities of different offices and organizations within it, the Lord reveals something about himself, specifically in verses 12 and 17. So we learn that uh, in 12, showing that he is the same God yesterday, today, and forever, and the same unchangeable God. So the question I have for all of you is this, in what ways is God unchangeable? How has he demonstrated his unchangeability in your life? So I just thought of, the phrase that doctrine doesn't change. People do, the church changes, but the doctrine never does. And so for me, God never changing means that he never changes his way of thinking. And God is very much open-minded, but he also is bound by law and by justice. And so he's merciful, but he can't change the laws. And so he is continually showing us that he is consistent with the doctrine. And so we can hold that close to ourselves. And when we have doubts, we can remember that he doesn't change his doctrine, but he loves us and wants us to understand that he is perfect and unchangeable. Excellent. Thank you for that. Another layer to this as well, because as we think about him not changing doctrine, sometimes people have a hard time distinguishing between policy, practices, doctrine, and people can give example after example of how policies, procedures, and practices will change. But I think this is also talking about his relationship to us. And that doesn't change. God is our heavenly father. That was true for our yesterday in the pre-mortal existence. It is true for our today in mortality and it will be true forever. He will always be our father. He will always be our God. In fact, Brad, I, we have a slide on this that kind of breaks down section 20 that I'd like to, I'd like to share with you. So you look at the first few verses. So section 20, verses about 2 to 16, the Lord is revealing more of the authority. So he's kind of setting it up. This, these are the authority verses. Then you start at about 17 through 36, and the Lord is going to talk specifically about his doctrine. And you look at the doctrine that he's talking about. Creation. I mean, yeah, Fall. exactly. The atonement of Jesus yeah. Christ. And this is where you see Christ is actually saying for the members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and in my church, we are going to believe this is the truth. The almighty God gave his only begotten son as it is written in the scriptures which have been given of him. He suffered temptations, but gave no heed unto them. He was crucified and died and rose again the third day. You, you think about the doctrine of Jesus Christ. They're simple. They don't change like you're talking about. They're, they're real. They're, they're foundational to everything we do. But then you see verses 37 to 84, we're seeing the rules. We're seeing the procedures. We're going to be talking a lot about important things. But these are things that sometimes do change. The handbook of instruction, for example, of the church, it's changed over the years. We don't have the same handbook in 1830 as we do in 2020. So it's so important as we're understanding who God is that God himself doesn't change. He is our father. Yeah. But look the policies at, and things Look at change, verse 40 on the sacrament. It says, administer bread and wine, the emblems of the Bingo. flesh and blood of Christ. But originally... That said, administer the flesh and blood of Christ. Yeah. And so then it was edited later for clarity to say, no, the bread and wine, which are emblems of. And, and wine in and of itself. Yeah. I mean, we don't even use wine anymore. So is that a doctrine? No, of course that's not a doctrine. But our relationship with God doesn't change and our covenant relationship with Jesus Christ, which is what we're renewing with the sacrament, that doesn't change. And his work and his glory doesn't change. We are his priority. Yeah. yeah. So one of the things we've been talking about is, again, the organization of the church, how God's will is revealed through his servants. And I think we have a video that uh, asks a question about this topic. Uh, hi, my name is Colin. Um, I actually had a 
question about the priesthood. It's one I've had for a while. Um, in Doctrine and Covenants, there's a verse that says something like, whether it is by my voice or my servants, it is the same. And that used to give me like a lot of confidence because if I talked to the bishop or a leader on my mission that I could just feel really comfortable with the answer they gave me because I would just feel like it was from God. And But recently there were, there's been some kind of just interactions with some people in my older wards and, and I started doubting and kind of wondering, it's like, who do I listen to? Like, how do I know that what they're saying is actually from God? And I guess my question is, what does that verse mean? Like, where's, is there a line? Like, do we follow everyone blindly or like, how do we know what to do? Can I just say first that that is an excellent question. I know that's a concern that, that a lot of people have. So thank you for, for asking that. Yeah, very thoughtful question. Yeah, wonderful question. The first thing we need to remember is that as we listen to church leaders, we have to remember that it's according to their stewardship. Just somebody expressing an opinion, much like we are today, that's very different from a prophet speaking for the church or a bishop speaking for his ward. We need to look at ourselves and we need to say, are we paying heed to the words and the commandments? Are we trying to walk in holiness and are we listening in patience and in faith. I think those questions can also be an expression of faith. I mean, I have a, here, a quote here from Brigham Young, and he essentially, he says, I am more afraid that this people have so much confidence in their leaders that they will not inquire for themselves of God, whether they are led by him. So while it's important to have patience and faith with, with our leaders and to recognize that they do have a mantle and that they are God's mouthpieces in some effect, I think it's, it's equally important to, to reach out to God and receive that testimony for ourselves and to ask those kind of questions. Is this from God? Because it's only by asking those questions that we receive that testimony. If you're in a position where you are searching for a personal revelation and you're unsure about that mantle, that your priesthood leaders have, what's an appropriate way to exercise all faith and patience while you're waiting for revelation to come? I have an example of my own personal life. I dated my husband for a while before we got married. My dad, he's an active member of the church, the stake president, he was serving as a patriarch at the time. My husband had proposed to me and then he broke off the engagement. And I was just so hurt. And as you can imagine, as my father, he wasn't happy either. <laughs> I remember him saying to me, um, Barb, I think you need to reconsider your continuing relationship with Dustin. And I said, Dad, I, you know, I, I don't know what to do because the Spirit is telling me that I'm to continue this. Besides the fact that I love him, the Spirit is telling me this. And my dad said, I know, but I'm afraid it might just be an emotional thing and you're really attached and it might be time to end this relationship. And then I said to my father, could you please give me a blessing? My dad gave me a blessing. And in the blessing, long story short, it just said, the Lord desires that you continue to be patient with Dustin. And there will become a time when you two will be married. After the blessing, my dad said to me, Barb, I am so sorry. I was speaking as your father, but now the Lord has spoken. And I knew the Lord had spoken. The Spirit had confirmed it to me. The Spirit had been confirming it to me all along. And there were a lot of people, including local leaders, that were, you know, trying their best to be supportive and helpful and recognizing that I was kind of struggling and maybe it was an emotional thing. But I, I knew for myself because the Spirit had confirmed to me that I was to continue dating him. And I'm so grateful I listened to the Spirit because I am giddy about my husband. I'm giddy about our relationship. I adore him. And for, for me, I could not be more grateful that I was able to be taught by the Spirit. On the other side, I think, you know, you have President Nelson who says this, my experience is that once you stop putting question marks behind the prophet statements and put exclamation points instead, 
and do it, the blessings just pour. I never ask myself, when does the prophet speak as a prophet and when does he not? My interest has been, how can I be more like him? So I think we have, in a sense, kind of statements on both sides, but I think that the reality of what's going on here is, let's have the correct motivation. We're trying to come into Christ. We're trying to do what's right. We have the spirit, we have the teachings of the prophets, and we as human beings have agency. And I think that's important. As we look at verses four and five of section 21, we see that it's not really the prophets who are on trial here. It's us. It says, wherefore, meaning the church, thou shalt give heed unto all his words. So when the prophet speaks for the church, then we are going to give heed to all his words and commandments, which he shall give unto you as he receiveth them, walking in all holiness. It's telling us that we need to be paying heed to the words and commandments of the prophets, that we need to be walking in holiness, and that we need to have patience and faith. Some things in the church, some things that come from the prophet are hard. Some things are difficult to deal with, and some things do feel like they go against where we are. There, there are people uh, including myself, including all of us at some time who may struggle with something that comes down from the prophet. And he recognizes that and says, some things take patience and faith. And he's, he's, not, he's not just saying, no, you're wrong. He's not saying, just believe me no matter what. Sometimes he's saying, be patient with me, but don't give up, don't cut your ties, because as my experience is, if we're willing to be patient, things will make sense in the long run. But, yeah. but we need to be patient with other people as they are trying to be patient too. So this has been an excellent discussion on the Lord's uh, organizing the church in, in 1830. Uh, maybe we can transition and talk a little bit more about some of the specifics in, in verses um, specifically relating to the image of God. Yeah, let's do that. So I wonder if we could focus in on a couple of verses that just kind of popped out to me that I have my own personal questions about. One of them is uh, section 20, verse 18, where it talks about the image of God. It says, so God created man, male and female, after his own image and in his own likeness created he them. What exactly does it mean to be created in God's image and likeness? And does this mean anything more than just having a physical body? I think the idea of a body is very important here mm -hmm. because he didn't create our spirits. He had our spirits. We are his beloved and begotten children spiritually. And so when, when people say created, if they take that too far, then they miss the idea that as his children, we have this incredible potential to become like him. Elder Tad Collister spoke at BYU and he said, can a painting become an artist? Can a building become an architect? No, they are their creations, but we are God's children. And because of that, we have the ability to become like him. So I think this verse says a lot about our potential. And it's interesting you said that because if you were to look in the, in the history of kind of Christian thought, being created in the image of God uh, and likeness of God has been understood different ways. Um, some theologians have understood it to comprise shared human and divine attributes like rationality or virtue or creativity or sovereignty or freedom, all of which kind of augment as we become more like our Heavenly Father. So this idea that we have Heavenly Father's spiritual genes, mm -hmm. right? And we, we can't escape our potential to be, to be like Him. Exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. The two things that you're pointing out was like image and likeness. And so we're created to become like our Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother. And so in our image, like we're, we're all human beings and created like them, function-wise and everything. But 
for like our likeness. How would you explain becoming like Heavenly Father? One thing that some um, authors understand it to be is image is something we had at the point of creation and likeness is something we have at the point of exaltation. So there's a sense in which we have an inherent seed of divinity, a divine potential, uh, but we have to grow, we have to mature. So yes, we have something inherent with us, but it's not fully realized. So if you were to look in the scriptures at descriptions of God and Christ, um, one thing we see that's interesting is that sometimes they overlap one another and with us. So for example, 3 Nephi, I am in the Father and the Father in me. 11, the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost are one. I am even as the Father and the Father and I are one. And if we're created in the image of likeness of God or if we're intended to cultivate the image and likeness of God within us, in what ways might disciples mirror this kind of overlapping of divine beings, this relational aspect of God's nature? Yeah. So I think the goal for disciples of Jesus Christ is to add ourselves to that list. Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, and myself are one. I think that is the goal for everyone who is seeking to, to follow Christ is to become one and I think Jesus Christ offers us that aid to allow us to, to see as he does and to feel as he does. And in fact, that's what Jesus Christ prayed for before he left his apostles mm -hmm. in, his, in his mortal ministry is, you know, please help these, my followers, be one in me as I am in thee, Father. It's a plea for sameness that we can become like Christ, that we can see others the way he sees them that we can see ourselves the way he sees us. Beautiful insight. That was an excellent discussion about possessing and cultivating the image and likeness of God within us. I wonder if we can transition now and talk a little bit more about justification and sanctification. Specifically, we read about this in section 20 verses 30 through 32. And we have a video question from a viewer at home. Hi, my name is Daniel Bustos. My wife, Lori, and I live in the Nashville, Tennessee area. One question we had, though, while studying for Doctrine and Covenants section 20 was about the concepts of justification and sanctification. Specifically, what's the difference between justification and sanctification? But also, can we be sanctified without being justified? Daniel, I think I'll go ahead and, and, and answer his question. Mm. It's a good one. If we look at Doctrine and Covenants 20, verses 30 and 31, we see where he is getting his question from. It says, and we know that justification through the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is just and true. And we know also that sanctification through the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is just and true. So he's saying, what's the difference? Justification alters our standing. Because of Jesus Christ, we can be declared not guilty. Sanctification alters our state of being. Because of Jesus Christ, we can be made holy. So Brother Bustos' question, can we be justified without being sanctified? The answer would be we need to be justified so that we can be sanctified. Mm -hmm. Because sanctification includes holiness and not just the lack of guilt. The uh, lack of guilt. Blame, yeah. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Brad. I think we have a, a great quote here by Elder Christofferson on the topic of justification and sanctification. He says this, to be sanctified through the blood of Christ is to become clean, pure, and holy. If justification removes the punishment for past sin, then sanctification removes the stain or effects of sin. 
And it seems to me that, that when we're talking about justification and sanctification, we need to understand that these are at the center of, of God's plan. I mean, Elder Christofferson talks about that. And he says this as well. He says, while justification and sanctification may be viewed as distinct topics, in reality, I believe they are elements of a single divine process that qualifies us to live in the presence of God, the Father, and Jesus Christ. Brett, I know you've given a lot of uh, thought to this topic. Can you talk to us a little bit about the role of grace in being sanctified and justified? Yeah, grace is a lot like getting a scholarship. A scholarship is a gift. It's not a student loan. It doesn't have to be paid back. But can somebody reject a scholarship? Yes, a scholarship is given with the idea that it's going to be used so just because you get a scholarship, does it mean you get an education? Does it mean you graduate? No, it just facilitates that. It makes that opportunity a reality if we're willing to utilize it. So we believe that grace is a gift. It's a free gift. It's not earned, it's not deserved, it's not merited, but like any gift, it has to be received. And like any gift, it can be rejected. Some people ask me, okay, why do you get baptized? Why do you have ordinances? Why do you have covenants? Why do you have to do these things? Are you earning grace? Are you earning heaven? And I say, no, no. Our covenants, renewing our covenants, keeping commandments, that's how we receive grace. That's how we utilize it. That's how we welcome and invite more and more grace. This is Elder Bednar. He says, grace represents that divine assistance or heavenly help each of us will desperately need to qualify for the celestial kingdom. Thus, the enabling power of the atonement strengthens us to do and be good and serve beyond our own individual desire and natural capacity. So with that definition and understanding grace to that extent that, that Elder Bednar is talking about, how have you experienced grace in your life? Yeah, please. So I have uh, a friend who I served with and who uh, after we came home a few years later, they made some decisions that were not the best decisions that they could have made. They struggled a lot emotionally because of it. And I just remember uh, there was one day where I was driving and I was thinking about them and their life and the situations that they were going through. It would have been very easy for people to be judgmental of them because of some of the decisions that they had made. And the thought that I had was that I still saw potential in them and I still believed that they could turn their lives around regardless of anything that had happened. And I still was willing to be there for them and help them in any way that I could. And the impression that hit my mind was if I, in all of my imperfection, love and believe in somebody, that Christ, in all of his perfection, was willing to love and believe in them and willing to love and believe in me despite my shortcomings. And that, for me, was the moment where I understood on a deeper level what it means for Christ to have us at the center of his work and his glory to always help us and work with us and lend his grace so that we can be exalted in the long term, regardless of what it takes to get there, regardless of how long it takes to get there, and regardless of the detours that we might take along the way. That is a perfect example of what the scriptures call returning grace 
for grace. To be able to reach out to others and offer the help, the strength that Christ offers us. That's a beautiful example of exactly what we're asked to do. We're not earning heaven. We're not working our way to heaven. We're practicing a Christ-like life. We are returning grace for grace. That was beautiful. Thank you. I really appreciate this conversation and thank you for all of your comments on justification and sanctification and then uh, tying in grace to that. It's been a great conversation. Thank you for your enthusiasm. Oh, thank, thank you for talking you. about it's scriptures with us. It's been a joy. Yeah. It is. These, these scriptures are phenomenal. It's so fun to see this, this church starting. So thank you for helping us through that. We also would like to thank you, all of you in the audience. Thank you for your wonderful, insightful thoughts, your comments, your testimonies. And to those of you at home, thank you for your comments and questions and insights that you shared with us via social media. We'd love to have you in the studio sometime, but if you can't, we hope you'll watch next week on Come Follow Up. Thanks a lot. Come Follow Up is a production of BYU Broadcasting.